Good morning. The meeting will come to order. This is the October 5th, 2022 Budget and Finance Committee meeting. I'm Supervisor Hillary Ronan, Chair of the Committee. I'm joined by Vice, Commi Vice Chair Supervisor Asha Safai, who is entering the room at the moment, uh, and Committee Member Supervisor Chan. Our clerk is Brent Halipa, and I would like to thank Michael Balthazar from TV for broadcasting this meeting. Mr. Clerk, do you have any announcements? Uh, thank you, Madam Chair. Just a friendly reminder for those in attendance in the chamber to make sure to silence all cell phones and electronic devices. Uh, the Board of Supervisors and its committees are now convening hybrid meetings that allow in-person attendance and public comment while still providing remote access and public comment via telephone. The Board recognizes that equitable public access is essential and will be taking public comment as follows. First, public comment will be taken on each item on the agenda. Those attending in person will be allowed to speak first, and then we will take those who are uh, waiting on the telephone line. For those watching either channels 26, 28, 78, or 99, and sfgovtv.org. The public com comment call-in number is streaming across the screen. That number is 415-655-0001. Again, that's 415-655-0001. Uh, then enter the meeting ID of 2495039-9628, then press pound twice. When connected, you will hear the meeting discussions, but you will be muted and in listening mode only. When your item of interest comes up and public comment is called, those joining us in person should line up to speak, and those on the telephone should dial star three uh, to be added to the speaker line. If you're on your telephone, please remember to turn down your TV and all listening devices you may be using. Each speaker will be allowed up to two minutes to speak unless otherwise stated. Alternatively, you may submit public comment in writing in either of the following ways. Email them to myself, the Budget and Finance Committee Clerk, at brent.jalipa at sfgov.org. If you submit public comment via email, it will be forwarded to the supervisors and also included as part of the official file. You may also send your written comments via U.S. Postal Service to our office in City Hall. That's 1 Dr. Carlton B. Goodlett Place, Room 244, San Francisco, California, 94102. And uh, finally, Madam Chair, as there is no board meeting next week due to Italian American Heritage and Indigenous Peoples Day items acted upon today, are expected to appear on the Board of Supervisors agenda of October 18th, unless otherwise stated. Madam Chair. Thank you so much. Can you please read item number one? Yes, item number one uh, is a resolution retroactively approving the grant agreement between the city and county and low-income investment fund for the provision to administer the San Francisco Child Care Facilities Fund and technical assistance for the period of July 1st, 2022 through June 30th, 2024, and in the amount not to exceed approximately $91.4 million. Members of the public who are joining us remotely and wish to comment, please call 415-655-0001. Enter the meeting ID of 2495-039-9628, then press pound twice. Once connected, press star three to enter the speaker line. A system prompt will indicate that you have raised your hand, and when the system indicates you have been unmuted, that is your signal to begin your comments. Madam Chair. Thank you so much. And we have Director Ingrid Mesquita here to present. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Supervisors Chair Ronin, um, Chan, and Safai. I'm Ingrid Mesquita. I'm the director for the San Francisco Department of Early Childhood. And I come forward again this month, <laughs> just like I've done in the last couple of months, um, to present our how we are using our baby prop C dollars, um, especially as building blocks, um, to establish San Francisco's universal system of early care and education. Um, another contract was approved last month um, that supports 
uh, more families in San Francisco, especially low and moderate income families, to afford early care and education in our city. And so as we build our city's early care and education system, we're also building, literally, um, the child care spaces that go with that. Uh, and so this grant represents our key investments in our, um, for long term. Um, it's about building quality infant and toddler classrooms and early care and education programming that becomes more accessible every year um, for all families in San Francisco. So we have before you um, our request to approve respectfully this grant agreement um, with the Low Income Investment Fund which represents um, retroactively from July 1st um, of this year through 2024, June 30th. And this is a long-term community partner um, with the city, the Low Income Investment Fund, who has administered for over two decades um, pre-development, capital development, startup, and um, renovation and repair grants for early care providers. This is both for center-based and family child care providers in our city. And what this agreement does, it actually um, helps us expand um, child care spaces throughout San Francisco, um, both in family child care as well as in center-based programs through capital development, renovation, and repair. And if you have any questions, I'm glad to answer. Um, I also have our senior um, project analyst, um, Graham Dobson, from our department, as well as someone from LIF um, that can help if you have very specific questions. Fantastic. And before we get into questions, we'll hear from the budget and legislative analyst. Thank you, Nick Menard from the budget legislative analyst office. So item one is a resolution approving a new grant agreement between the Department of Early Childhood and the Low Income Investment Fund. Um, it's a two-year agreement uh, through June 2024, and we show in the report that the grant amount is approximately $85.6 million, including a contingency. Uh, the, the resolution not to exceed amount um, is $91 million. Uh, and so we're recommending a uh, reduction in the not to exceed amount to be consistent with the budget of the underlying grant. We also detail in the report that the majority of the funds would be used um, to provide grants and loans to expand and renovate uh, child care centers. Thank you. And just before we go to questions, is that is that recommendation acceptable to you? Yes. Okay, great. Uh, before I turn it over to Supervisor Safai, I just wanted to say I had a really uh, lovely and informative meeting yesterday with Mr. Dobson and um, Ms. Lamb of your department, and I got so excited about this. So thank you so much. It's, a, it, it's incredible, incredible work, and it, it's so original. Uh, and, and groundbreaking, and hope that this is one of those other San Francisco uh, policy uh, fiscal interventions that spreads beyond our city. Um, I also just want to note for the record that, um, while I, I completely understand uh, the, the long-term and, and really successful relationship that we've had with the Low Income Investment Fund, that. Uh, I would like to see this work come in-house eventually now that we have a united department. And I understand that that's probably premature at this point. You have a lot to do, a lot of hiring to do right now. Um, but I did appreciate the fact um, that Mr. Dobson explained that because of that uh, potential in the future, that this is a, only a two-year contract in, in, instead of your typical three to five years. So anyway, I just wanted to thank you all for your tremendous work and to say um, 
that it was such a pleasure hearing from you, from, you know, directly from your staff yesterday. So thanks. Also, uh, Mr. Clerk, if I can be added as a sponsor of this legislation, Mr. Sa uh, Supervisor Safai. Thank you. Um, thank you, Director Esquita. Thanks to LIF. Um, I have a slightly different perspective on the, the in-house versus out, out of the house, but we can have that conversation later. I would just say that one of the things that I have known, I have a lot of experience working in this area because we've done a number of different purchases and work with a number of different family child care providers, that um, the, the Low Income Investment Fund ends up being uh, kind of an administrative body that quickly gets the money on the street as part of their larger vision and the work that they do. So this is kind of added as a complement to their work. And so I'm open to those conversations, happy to have them, but just wanted to provide a little insight as to the facility that they provide, the speed with which they provide, uh, the money getting into the hands of uh, family child care providers and child care facilities. So that brings me to my, my first question, which is, what percentage or have you thought about a percentage of this monies, Director Esquita, that would be actually set aside or directed toward uh, family child care providers or early centers? Because often, and, and we've had a lot of these conversations, um, they can, I'm not saying they're an afterthought, but they can be overshadowed by the larger uh, providers of child care and child care facilities. We both were at a site uh, this past weekend a wonderful family child care operation. It had grant monies, it had lift money, it had volunteer money, um, but it was enhancing their outdoor space and some of their indoor space. So just wanted to give you the opportunity to talk about that, and, and, and if you haven't thought about it, um, I know sometimes hard set percentages can be uh, constraining, but I also think that having a minimum um, that is directed toward or focused on family child care providers could be very beneficial um, because otherwise they might end up being overshadowed by the larger facilities. Agreed. And that's why in this budget it represents uh, not a percentage but a set amount, mm. um, which has not been um, the case in previous um, grant agreements. Um, mostly we've been working with child care developer fees that are collected from the city, which are very volatile. Um, and now that we have baby prop C, we're able to set aside a, set, a, a certain amount um, with uh, uh, some certainty um, that it will be consistent. And so what we've done is we've set a, uh, set a minimum amount of $10 million out of the entire um, grant amount annually um, to sp support expansion of family child care. Um, we're looking also an acquisition um, to support um, down payment assistance as well as um, repairs and renovations to existing um, sites. Family child care providers um, work on a very tight margin. Uh, so in order to improve um, backyards, um, like the one that we were at, mm -hmm. um, we're making significant investments, um, including with partnership with Rec and Park, around building um, natural and beautiful environments for children to play with. So it's not just, it's not just um, expansion of child care spaces, it's also improving the child care spaces that currently exist. Great. Yeah, I didn't see that in the report. I saw that it said 70 million would go to early child care providers, but I didn't see anything specifically, unless I missed it, that talked about how much money would go to family child care providers. But if you're saying $10 million, um, is that reflected anywhere in the budget uh, through the chair to the budget legislative analyst? Uh, that, did I miss that? 
It's not in the report, but it is consistent with the underlying documents that were provided by the department. Okay. Yep. That would be good. If you could send that to us, that would yes. be great, because I know I'm, we're going to get a lot of questions as this information hits the streets, and it would be good to be able to point to, here's $10 million directly for family child care providers. We'll and, then I, and then I see here and that it's up to $2 million uh, for nonprofit providers and half a million for for profit for the capital related projects and then 125,000 respectively for pre-development work. Can you talk a little bit about that and how you came up with those numbers? Right, so this is based on um, different um, methodology that we've used in the past around how much it costs to actually build um, childcare space. Because nonprofit organizations are major providers in, in the city, the expansion really does, um, does work much better with nonprofit organizations. They have the infrastructure and they also have um, ability to leverage other resources from the state and even sometimes federal. The, um, the amounts are based, really are also prioritized based on the location that the nonprofit provider is looking at expanding childcare. So for example, in areas where there's affordable housing um, or it's a HOPE SF site, we actually make those grants um, a little bit larger because they're serving a higher need population. And in this $2 million for capital, I just thought about this, does that include a tenant improvement? It's mostly for the build-out of the space. There are other grants that complement that $2 million. It includes, um, there are other grants around soft costs, which is pre-development. Yeah, um, I saw the pre-development. Right. I'm just curious. It says capital. Yes, that um, really is the, the TIs. Okay. Thank you, and thank you for this. It's, it's extremely, extremely exciting and important. Uh, we had a couple, as you know, a couple of non uh, child care providers shut down during covid so many of them have felt strain in a different way than many of the other industries in our city because people just stopped sending their children or couldn't send their children to these uh, early child care providers when we spent so much time trying to expand them and make sure that they're uh, successful and survive. So um, we've utilized this. We will probably come back now that this amount has been raised to $2 million. I have a particular project in mind that we might be talking about, Grant and Director Esquita, because I don't think they've maxed out at two million. <laughs> and so we'll, we'll talk to that provider. But please add me as a co-sponsor to this, and thank you for all this tremendous work. It's extremely important. Thank you so much. Can we please open this item up for public comment? Thank you, Madam Chair. Members of the public who wish to speak on this item and are joining us in person should line up now. Uh, for those listening remotely, please call 415-655-0001 with the meeting ID as 2495-039-9628, then press pound twice. Once connected, press star three to enter the speaker line. How for those already in the queue, please continue to wait until the system indicates you have been unmuted, and that'll be your signal to begin your comments. Seeing no in-person speakers here in the chamber. Madam Chair, we have no speakers in the queue. Public comment is now closed. Make a motion to amend this item as uh, suggested by the BLA. On that motion to uh, to amend, to accept the BLA's uh, recommendations, Vice Chair Safai. Aye. Safai, aye. Member Chan. Aye. Chan, aye. Chair Ronan. Aye. Ronan, aye. We have three ayes. Yeah, that motion passes. Make a motion to send the amended item to the full board with positive recommendation. 
On that motion to forward the resolution to the full board with the positive recommendation as amended. Vice Chair Safai. Aye. Safai, aye. Member Chan. Aye. Chan, aye. Chair Ronan. Aye. Ronan, aye. We have three ayes. That motion passes unanimously. Thank you so much. Bye. Mr. Clerk, can you please read item number two? Yes, item number two is a resolution retroactively authorizing the Department of Public Health to accept and expand the grant in the amount of 226000 from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention through the California Department of Public Health for participation in a program entitled Asylum Seeker Health Surveillance and Linkage to Care for the period of September 1st, 2022 through June 30th, 2023. Members of the public who are joining us remotely and wish to comment, please call 415-655-0001. Enter the meeting ID of 2495039-9628, then press pound twice. Uh, once, in, once connected, press star three to enter the speaker in line. A system prompt will indicate that you've raised your hand, and when the system indicates you have been unmuted, there will be your cue to begin your comments. Madam Chair. Thank you so much. And I believe uh, we have Patricia Irwin on the line to discuss this item. Hi there. Actually, um, my name is Christy Dietrich. I'll be presenting. Okay, great. And um, yeah, good afternoon, uh, afternoon, Board of Supervisors. My name is Christy Dietrich. I'm the Program Manager for San Francisco Department of Public Health Newcomers Health Program. And I'm here to request your approval for the California Department of Public Health grant opportunity to support asylum seekers in San Francisco called Asylum Seeker Health Surveillance and Linkage to Care. So this funding is an exciting opportunity to build on newcomers health program services of providing health care to refugee populations in San Francisco since 1980. Newcomers health program partners with Family Health Center at Zuckerberg SF General and supports access and linkages to health assessment services for immigrants of humanitarian concern as those include refugees, asylees, victims of human trafficking and certain immigrants right now from Afghanistan and Ukraine. Newcomers Health Program was selected as a grantee based on our decades of experience and success conducting linguistically and culturally supportive outreach and providing quality health support to people recently granted asylum. So this funding will allow us to expand our services to a wider population and support hundreds of those seeking asylum in San Francisco who are waiting months, sometimes years, for their asylum cases to be adjudicated. So we'll also be participating in strategic planning with other city departments to respond to potentially large groups of asylees who may be transported to our sanctuary city from other states. Asylum seekers flee their home countries due to persecution based on race, religion, gender, political opinion, or membership in particular groups, and they seek legal protection in the United States. These are individuals and families who've experienced arduous journeys, physical and emotional trauma, family separation, and neglected health care. Many are fearful of obtaining services once they're here, including health care, while their cases um, or asylum cases are pending. But through our network of longstanding partnerships, we'll be able to provide linkages to quality social services, educational, and legal services, as well as ongoing primary health care. The funding of $226,000 will provide a case manager and a program coordinator to ensure that asylum seekers receive health and wellness screenings, are enrolled in available health insurance or health coverage, and that people are linked to social and ongoing health care services, including immunizations and vaccines for preventable diseases. The backlog of asylum cases at the San Francisco Asylum Office is up to four years long right now. So that is four years that people go without primary care 
without immunizations and without accurate information on support services and human rights, which can also make people more vulnerable to illnesses and exploitation. Newcomers Health Program is experienced and ready to support asylum seekers, and this funding will allow us to achieve that, ensuring good health for asylum seekers as well as all San Franciscans. Uh, we request approval to retrospectively accept and expend these funds, and I'm here to answer any questions as well as Mr. Greg Wong for any specifics on the accept and expend process. Thank you. Great. Thank you so much. Uh, there's no questions, but thank you so much for your work. Mr. Clerk, can we please open public comment to this item? Yes, Madam Chair. Members of the public who wish to speak on this item and are joining us in person should line up now to speak. For those listening remotely, please call 415-655-0001 with the meeting ID of 2495-039-9628, then press pound twice. You will need to press star three to enter the speaker line. And please continue to wait until the system indicates you have been admitted and as your cue to begin your comments. Seeing no in-person speakers here in the chamber, and Madam Chair, we have no speakers in the queue. Public comment is now closed. I'd like to make a motion to send this item to the full board with positive recommendation. On that motion to forward the resolution to the full board with a positive recommendation, Vice Chair Safai. Aye. Safai, aye. Member Chan? Aye. Chan, aye. Chair Ronan? Aye. Ronan, aye. We have three ayes. That motion passes unanimously. Mr. Clerk, can you please read item number three? Item number three is a resolution retroactively authorizing the Department of Public Health to accept and expend a grant increase in the amount of approximately $2 million for a total amount of approximately $4.6 million from the Health Resources and Services Administration for participation in a program entitled Ending the Human Immunodeficiency Virus Epidemic, a plan for America. Ryan White, Human Immunodeficiency Virus Acquired Immunodeficiency Syndrome Program. Uh, parts A and B for the period of March 1st, 2020 through February 28th, 2023. Members of the public who are joining us remotely and wish to comment, please call 415-655-0001 with the meeting ID of 2495-039-9628 and press pound twice. Once connected, press star three to enter the speaker line. Hey, system prompt will indicate that you have raised your hand and when the system indicates you have been unmuted, there will be a cue to begin your comments. Madam Chair. Thank you, and I believe we have Bill Blum on the line from DPH to present. Yes, uh, good afternoon, supervisors. Um, it's really a, a pleasure to be able to um, present this uh, to you for your consideration to ex accept and expend the grant retroactively. Um, this was additional funding that actually became available through a federal initiative uh, under former President uh, Donald Trump. Uh, one of the, it was funding five different federal agencies. One of those was uh, a CARE, CARE, Ryan White, um, HIV, HRSA, excuse me, HAB, HRSA, HAB, HIV AIDS Pro, uh, Bureau. Um, we are the recipient uh, of that funding. Um, we are using this funding for the past two years to really address disparities in HIV health outcomes as measured by viral load. Um, differences, and we are in strong partnership with our colleagues from our sister unit in CHEP and Population Health Division um, to ensure both kind of the continu continuity um, all the way from prevention to care services. These funds um, will be focused on Black African American communities, people transitioning out of uh, recent incarceration, um, people in processes of gender confirmation surgery people who use substances and people who are experiencing um, homelessness and or housing instability. 
Um, we are funding both um, community-based um, programs, UCSF, as well as some DPH programs as well. Wonderful, thank you so much. Uh, and thank you for your work. Uh, no questions, so we'll open up this item to public comment. Yes, members of the public who wish to speak on this item and are joining us in person should line up now. For those listening remotely, please call 415-655-0001 with the meeting ID of 2495-039-9628 and press pound twice. Uh, once connected, press star three to enter the speaker line. Please continue to wait until the system indicates you have been unmuted and that'll be your cue to begin your comments. Seeing no in-person speakers here in the chamber. And Madam Chair, we have no speakers in the queue. Public comment is now closed. I'd like to make a motion to send this item to the full board with positive recommendation. On that motion to forward this resolution to the full board with a positive recommendation, Vice Chair Safai. Aye. Safai, aye. Member Chan. Aye. Chan, aye. Chair Ronan. Aye. Ronan, aye. We have three ayes. Motion passes unanimously. Thank you. Um, Mr. Clerk, can you please Thank read you. item number four? Yes, item number four is an ordinance amending the administrative code to require the tax collector to provide information to the mayor's office of housing and community development on real property that uh, for at least three years has been tax defaulted and to require the tax collector to provide to the Board of Supervisors a summary of his referrals to government agencies and other organizations for the purpose of resolving property tax delinquencies prior to the sale of non-payment of taxes. Members of the public are joining us remotely and wish to comment. Please call 415-655-0001. Enter the meeting ID of 2495-039-9628. Then press pound twice. Once connected, press star three to enter the speaker line. A system prompt will indicate that you've raised your hand when the system indicates you have been unmuted. It is your cue to begin your comments, Madam Chair. Thank you, Supervisor Safai. Thank you. Um, this is a pretty straightforward piece of legislation. Earlier this year, we considered approving uh, a sale of some tax defaulted properties that were on the list uh, and recommended by the treasurer's office. And so for the first time since I've been on the bo board, homes uh, were proposed for sale that were occupied, actually occupied by residents. So it turns out the treasurer tax collector sells property after seven years that they're on the tax default list and that MOHCD has services that can help homeowners stabilize their financial situation because we want to prioritize making sure people remain housed. So this legislation that we worked on in partner partnership with the treasurer tax collector uh, was drafted to prevent the future sale of occupied homes by requiring the treasurer tax collector to work with the mayor's office of housing um, at year three to connect the tax defaulted uh, homeowners with services that they need. Um, I want to thank the city attorney's office and the departments along with the treasurer tax collector. Um, I'm going to turn it over to Eric. Uh, Mankey from the Treasurer Tax Collector's Office, and I think we have Maria Benjamin from the Mayor's Office of Housing, although I don't see her in person, um, to discuss the process and services that are offered. So I'll, I'll follow up after that. Chair. Uh, thank you, Supervisor. Uh, yes, please. Uh, uh, Chair Ronan, Supervisor Chan, Eric Mankey with the Office of the Treasurer and Tax Collector. Um, I will just briefly um, review the process for how our office communicates with and assist property owners after um, their property goes into tax default and then leading up to an auction. Just give a brief overview of that and then turn it over to the Mayor's Office of Housing and Community Development. Um, an important first piece of information to know is that the auction is uh, the auction process
process is primarily governed by state law. So we are um, implementing that state law primarily here. Um, if a property tax bill remains unpaid at the end of a fiscal year, it becomes tax delinquent or in redemption status. Once in this status, we send regular mailings to the property owners each year. Uh, they receive redemption bills twice a year, which inform them that their taxes are delinquent and include inserts about our plan, uh, about our payment plan and any other assistance that might be available. Um, as an example, this year we are inserting a flyer about the pandemic-related California Mortgage and Property Tax Assistance Program. Um, they also receive a standard secured annual tax bill, which alerts them to their tax defaulted status. Um, and any time prior to their fifth year of delinquency, taxpayers may request an installment payment plan, which allows them to pay defaulted taxes over a five-year period. It's important to note that if a property owner has an installment plan that is in good standing, their property will not become subject to power to sale or auction. After five years, state law requires uh, delinquent parcels become subject to power to sell, but does not require they be auctioned until nine years of delinquency. Our office has a policy that we do not auction parcels until year nine of delinquency. At the beginning of the ninth year, our property tax staff begins a more active phase of reaching out to property owners and any parties of interest um, to alert them to the impending auction. We also begin informing the Board of Supervisors um, of any parcels of interest, as the supervisor had mentioned, and introduce a resolution seeking board approval for the auction. Uh, for parcels with no known contact information, we take additional steps that exceed state requirements. We mail notifications to all contiguous parcels uh, to make them aware of the auction as well. Um, and then, of course, we take additional steps for any occupied uh, property where there could be an individual at risk of losing their home. Uh, sheriff's deputies conduct on-site visits. Uh, we also partner with the Department of Aging, Adult Protective Services, and with the Mayor's Office of Housing and Community Development and Homeownership SF to bring additional resources to assist these individuals so that they um, can pay their taxes and remain housed. Um, and I'll just uh, note that our partnership with the Mayor's Office of Housing and Community Development and Homeownership SF has been partic particularly successful and we're looking forward to it continuing and expanding um, uh, via this ordinance. Uh, I think I'll stop there and I'm happy to answer any questions. My colleague, uh, Bianca, is also on, um, online uh, via Teams. She's kind of our resident expert on the auction so she can also answer any questions you might have. I don't have any questions. Supervisor Chan. Uh, I, I want to thank Supervisor Safai for your leadership on this. Um, we definitely uh, experienced that in District 1 uh, in the recent, recently that we did actually have an, a property in District 1 that was unfortunately um, was on for auction, but it was occupied. And I think it was actually one of the last three. And we definitely work actually with your team, you know, and, and with the tax collector's office, which we really appreciate uh, to really figure out. And we were also very fortunate that the individual actually um, through community network and identify a um, mix of kin or, or a relative, be able to step up and, and actually pay uh, the tax 
months old. I do have a question, I think, through the chair to Supervisor Safai or maybe the tax collector's office can answer. Um, I'm, I'm just looking at the legislation. Help me understand, though. It, it seems like this is really specifically just to clarify or codify an outreach for tax default, default properties, but not so much so that we, like, if there is an occupant in that, on that property, so that it that it could it, it, outreach would be conducted, but not that it will protect the individual. Well, from what, what you just heard just through the chair, what you just heard from the treasurer tax collector's office is they wait until year nine right. to have any proceedings. This is this legislation requires that you engage in year three, and that you work with the mayor's office of housing and other resources to try to help. Similar to what what happened in the instance that you described where they work with family members. And so this is to have earlier intervention and require that earlier intervention aggressively so as to ensure a, a positive outcome. Right, and, but, but I, I guess I'm just trying to say is that I just want to clarify. So in the event that you do try and you have to outreach, you want to have results because as far as I, I understand, well, obviously, much better at year three than at year nine when you're like about to go on an auction. That's for sure. Um, and, and so, but either way, though, if you actually end up saying with all these intervention and outreach by year nine, the very same situation, if those individuals could not um, at this juncture, at this point, because mandated by state law, right. we, we're not really in the position to actually right. change that. Yeah, we, we, ha we don't have the authority to do that. Yeah, that, that individual, even if it's occupied, it, we, Correct. We are, we're mandated to actually auction the property. Okay, right. I, just, yes. I just really want to un understand that. And actually, I really appreciate it and would like to be added as a co-sponsor to the legislation um, because I do agree that early intervention is... It's better than not having any, and also, um, but I do actually have quick questions with the Mayor's Office of Housing and Community Development. I think Sheila is here. Thank you so much. Um, I think the quick question is, uh, what does outreach look like? And I think it's, it seems like you could assist assesses or property, uh, you could assist the uh, assessees and property owners. and what type of program would you then be offering to them? Thank you for the intro. I, was, I have my notes ready to answer that question. Uh, Sheila Nicolopoulos, Director of Policy and Legislative Affairs for the Mayor's Office of Housing and Community Development. So let me walk you through the kinds of programs that we have available to support homeowners that might be in this situation. Um, so as was stated, the proposed legislation will codify the ways that our offices are currently working together, and MOHCD will continue to focus on properties at higher risk, and that this earlier notification will really help us be more proactive in that work. So MOHCD supports the owners of these properties through our Homeowner Emergency Loan Program. We call it the HELP Program. These are one-time emergency financial assistance loans for an unforeseen financial hardship. The funds can be used to pay past mortgage payments, uh, overdue HOA monthly dues, past property taxes, or special renovations such as, or special assessments such as renovation costs passed down to residents. Um, the HELP loans are available for up to $50,000, and it's a 30-year no interest deferred loan with no monthly payment. Instead of interest, owners pay an equitable share of any gain appreciation from the date that the HELP loan documents um, go into effect until the loan is paid in full. 
The loans do require owner occupancy for the life of the loan, and MOHCD does conduct annual owner occupancy monitoring to check that. We also are now offering HELP COVID loans, which have fewer eligibility requirements than our regular HELP, uh, and are, was created to respond to loss of income due to the pandemic specifically. Um, in addition to this direct financial assistance, MOHCD also provides community development grant funding to HUD-approved housing counseling agencies to support homeowners at risk of foreclosure and to provide them with legal assistance if needed. Um, as part of our grant funding, Homeownership SF, which we've mentioned, provides quarterly workshops for homeowners to learn about issues like property taxes and to connect them with both city and state resources available to assist them if they're at risk. Um, and the state has significant grant funding to offer homeowners coming out of COVID as well. So we have sort of a portfolio of both financial products and technical assistance support, community connections, to really help them early um, to address these issues before they become big problems. Thank you, and I want to thank all of you collectively, including Supervisor Safai, for your work on this. Very important, and I, too, would like to be added as a co-sponsor. And we can now open this item up for public comment. Thank you, Madam Chair. Members of the public who wish to speak on this item and are joining us in person should line up now to speak. For those listening remotely, please call 415-655-0001. Enter the meeting ID of 2495-039-9628, then pound twice. Once connected, press star 3 to enter the speaker line. For those already in the queue, please continue to wait until the system indicates you have been unmuted, and that will be your queue to begin your comments. Seeing no in-person speakers here in the chamber. And Madam Chair, we have no speakers in the queue. Public comment is now closed. Supervisor Safa, would you like to do the honors? Sure. I'd like to send this item to the full board with positive recommendation. On that motion by Vice Chair Safai to forward this resolution to the full board with a positive recommendation. Vice Chair Safai? Aye. Safai, aye. Member Chan? Aye. Chan, aye. Chair Ronan? Aye. Ronan, aye. We have three ayes. Motion passes unanimously. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Clerk, can you please read item number five? Yes, item number five is a resolution approving the Sheriff's Office Home Office's Home Detention and Electronic Monitoring Program in lieu of confinement rules and regulations and approving evidence of financial responsibility demonstrated by Program Administrator Sentinel Offender Services, LLC, for fiscal year 2022 to 2023. Members of the public who are joining us remotely and wish to comment on this resolution, please call 415-655-0001. Enter the meeting ID of 2495-039-9628, then press pound twice. Once connected, press star three to enter the speaker line. A system prompt will indicate that you have raised your hand and when the system indicates you have been unmuted, that is your cue to begin your comments. Madam Chair. Hi, uh, we have Crispin Hollings from the Sheriff's Department who will present. Yes, good afternoon, Supervisors. My name is Crispin Hollings. I'm here on behalf of Sheriff Miyamoto to discuss electronic monitoring, or EM. I have this presentation here. Um, the California Penal Code, Section 1203.016, authorizes the Sheriff to offer home detention with EM for sentencing individuals and subjects EM program rules to an annual review by the Board of Supervisors. At the same time, the sheriff operates an EM program which can include post-sentence participants per section 1203.016, but today there are no post-sentence participants. However, this program can and does include pre-sentence participants 
who are on EM as a result of a court order, and over the past few years, courts are increasingly making such orders. In this court-ordered program, unlike 1203.016, it's the courts, not the sheriff, who determine EM assignments and EM rules. The Board of Supervisors could establish EM rules for pre-sentence individuals per California Penal Code 1203.018, but under this program, it would be the sheriff, not the courts, who would determine EM assignments. Um, as I mentioned, court assignments to EM are increasing. In fiscal 2017-18, an appellate court ruling required courts to consider alternatives when setting release conditions. Since that ruling, court orders for EM, as illustrated in this chart, have increased steadily from approximately 40 pre-sentence participants per month before the ruling to a monthly average of almost 500 in fiscal 21-22. And as EM participation has grown, so have challenges for successful outcomes. As part of an EM determination, the court reviews defendant information from a public safety assessment, or PSA, a tool developed by the Arnold Foundation to reduce unnecessary pretrial detention. As illustrated in this green, yellow, red table on the slide, the PSA scores the risk of a pre-sentence defendant reoffending and or not appearing in court. Using the risk score, the decision-making framework, or DMF, recommends release or no release, and if release is recommended, the DMF also recommends one of three levels of supervision with higher risk correlating with higher supervision. Recommendations are advisory only, and the court makes final determination. And while EM is not formally a part of DMF data, data shows that the court is increasingly likely to apply EM as a condition for release when risk scores are high. As pretrial assignments have increased, increases have involved those with higher risk scores. Assertive case management, or ACM, is the highest level of supervision for pretrial releases with provisions as summarized on this slide. Increasingly, those on EM are concurrently assigned by the court to ACM from 58% in 2019 to 77% at the beginning of this year. For those with the highest risk scores, the DMF advises release not recommended, or RNR, and this group has likewise become a larger part of EM. The increase in ACM and RNR caseload indicates a changing EM landscape wherein participants are increasingly likely to have been assessed with high needs and or risk. This presents challenges to successful program completion, and you will hear more about this from a subsequent presentation by California Policy Lab. However, uh, challenges notwithstanding, EM has also had a positive impact on San Francisco's jail population. As illustrated on this slide, San Francisco's total justice-involved population increased by 20% between September 2016 and September 2022, but as a result of San Francisco's focus on alternatives to incarceration, including EM, the total in-custody population in the same time frame decreased by 40%. 
As the courts increasingly assign pre-sentence individuals to EM, Sheriff Miyamoto has taken on several initiatives for successful program completion as listed here. In the last of these initiatives, an EM program evaluation was promised to this body about a year ago. And uh, unless you have any questions for me, I will turn this over to Alyssa Skog from California Policy Lab, an arm of UC Berkeley for CPL's evaluation of San Francisco's EM program. Sure. Um, can I bring him up after we hear from the budget and legislative analysts? Certainly. Thank you, Chair Ronan. Uh, item five is a resolution that approves the fiscal year 22-23 rules and regulations for the Sheriff's Home Detention Electronic Monitoring Program. Um, the rules apply for um, post-sentence participants uh, in that program. Uh, the resolution also um, appro approves evidence of uh, Sentinel Offender Services LLC's financial responsibility, um, which is the contract, which is the equipment provider for the program. Um, as background, the sheriff operates this program um, under an administrative code section approved by the Board of Supervisors um, uh, through Penal Code Section 1203.016, which allows a Board of Supervisors of any county to establish um, a home detention and electronic monitoring program for post-sentence participants. Um, the, the Penal Code also allows for um, the board to create a program for EM for pre-sentence, pe people who are pre-sentence. The board considered legislation to do that back in 2013. The legislation never passed. So there's no board approved program uh, for pre-sentence uh, individuals. Because the board approved the program for post-sentence people, that gives the board the option to weigh in every year on the rules and regulations, which is the purpose of this resolution, and to um, review the evidence of financial responsibility for the contracts that have been approved by the board. So the last time the board took action on this particular program was back in 2019, when, when there were two separate resolutions, one to approve um, the rules and regulations for the program for the calendar year 2019, and then separately um, a resolution to approve a contract with Sentinel Offender Services that provides the GPS equipment for the electronic monitoring program. Uh, in terms of fiscal impact, the sheriff is spending about $800,000 a year on the Sentinel contract, um, and th that contract's in place through 2024. You know, I. We were asked to look at uh, different kind of policy issues related to this resolution, so I have a few thoughts. One is that, you know, I think what's happening here legislatively is extremely murky and confusing. The, and could be made clearer, the resolution, um, basically the authority in the resolution is coming from the penal code authorization for post-sentence participants. And then the resolution itself references as the rules for the program that the board's approving, a scope of work for the contract with Sentinel, <laughs> but those aren't rules and regulations. That's simply a scope of work with the co between of a contract between the sheriff and Sentinel. It applies to both pre-sentence and post-sentence participants, and the contract in the legislative file is the one that the board approved in 2019. It has since been amended in August 2022 to increase the not to exceed amount, 
Um, but that amendment hasn't come to the board because the city attorney determined it didn't need to. So I think the underlying files um, in the legislative file are confusing. And so one thing the board could do to cl help clarify what it's actually, what's actually happening here is to ask the sheriff to bring separate rules for, po for pre and post sentence participants in the EM program that would properly align with the scope of the resolution um, and you know, clarify and allow for differences in the program rules between those programs. Um, I think the board could also consider, to the extent that it wants to provide input annually on a EM program for pre-sentence individuals, it could reconsider legislation to do that as it did in 2013 and 14. Um, and that would provide the board an opportunity to weigh in on those program rules. And I think uh, another avenue also to, the, uh, to influence the rules here is, you know, the board can always pass an ordinance working with the city attorney's office, of course, um, to regulate aspects of the program as it did um, with recent legislation pertaining to DNA data. So I think that there are various ways. Or the penal code, the California penal code, does allow for the board to set its own rules and regulations for a pre-sentence program. Also, as the BLA mentioned, under penal code 1203.016. But if that were to happen, then it would be the correctional administrator or the sheriff, uh, possibly, but not the courts, who would be um, who would be making EM assignments. Back in 2018, you may know this already better than I, but this body um, opined on an EM program. And in the final resolve clause, it mentioned that the operating model should reflect the principles of neutrality and structural independence from law enforcement functions. And at that time, I understood it to mean better to keep it in the Got courts, it. not- So if we, if we set the rules and regulations and put it in our in our, um, field of decision making, then we take that authority away from the court, and then it ends up being, by default, handed over to the sheriff's office. The sheriff would ad would administer the right. program according to the rules and regulations. But the, I mean, it would be up to the sheriff to determine, uh, according to the rules and regulations, who is taken off of pretrial detention and put on to uh, pretrial. EM, as opposed to today when it's the courts, it's the courts who determine making that decision. who do right. not go on pretrial detention. So, uh, okay. So, I mean, that was, that was essentially uh, the kind of the crux of my questions. And I, I think that, you know, that's something that we have to decide as a body if we want to have that authority and hand that authority to the sheriff or we want to keep that authority within the courts and in front of the judges who are spending a little more time thinking about that and keep the independence away from uh, the local law enforcement body. Um, I have a few more, but I'll allow my colleagues to ask a few questions, and then we can come back, because we want, we want to get this right. I mean, I think we want the success of the program. I mean, the numbers were stark. I mean, 40% success rate is important, but 60% failure, 40% of that 60 is people not respecting the stay-away orders, and so seems as though that there's some things that we could do to enhance and bolster the success of the program, um, and I think that's what's worthy for further discussion. Supervisor Chan. Thank you, Chair Ronan. I, I think my question, perhaps it is for uh, the city attorney's office, and, and I have a different um, direction on, on this, and I, I, because I do agree that it seems, 
It, it is an interesting resolution. It's it's sort of like looped in. I think like the BLA, um, the, the budget and legislative legislative uh, legislative office has suggested that in this resolution we're sort of lumping the conversation around or lumping you know one is the contract referencing the contract of the sentinel um, offender services and the other one is sort of this you know uh, simply just the about post sentence but not uh, but not the pre-sentence programs when the reference of the contract is really mainly on the pre-sentence <laughs> program. So the question that I have though, here it says specifically, and I don't understand why that occur. If I can, uh, be, you know, someone can explain, I think the city attorney's office can explain that why that in August of this year, that when the contract increased from 3.4 million to 4.7 million, which is a 1.3 million difference, that it did not actually come, needed to come to the board of supervisors for approval when it's uh, stated in Charter 9.118. Deputy City Attorney John Givner. This this agreement is not subject to approval under Section 9.118 because it's not a total $10 million expenditure of funds by the city. Uh, so, so, so I believe that the, the original contract came to the board for approval under the state statute. Um, 9.118 contracts come to the board and then uh, the board must approve certain types of amendments to those, those agreements. Um, so this, this is out of the 9118 lane and uh, because it's not a $10 million contract. And the board approved in 2019 because the state statute required approval. I'm sorry, it, is 9.118 over 10 million or over 1 million? And then uh, it, like over 1 million or over 10 years terms and conditions? There, there are a couple different categories of 9118 contracts. Uh, if the contract is bringing in revenue to the city, the threshold for board approval is $1 million. If the contract is expending city money, the threshold is $10 million. Understood. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so I have many questions and issues <laughs> with this program. Sure. So. Thank you. <laughs> So let me just start to clarify something. So uh, when, when my staff asked our city attorney and Pearson about whether or not the board could regulate the pre-sentencing uh, program, uh, she said we could do what you said. We could create a program under the sheriffs, but the court could still run its program. And the rules and regulations that are before us today that sort of govern the pre and the, pro the post would continue to run the, would continue to guide the court mandated uh, EM program. And we would then have this separate program that the Board of Supervisors would govern. So we then have these confusing two programs. Is that correct? That would be my understanding of it, yes. Okay. So that, and, and uh, City Attorney John Givner is nodding his head in agreement. So, so it's not just, it's not a, a clear, it's not such a clear cut decision on our part on whether or not we want to create rules and regulations that perhaps the board feels more comfortable with uh, that would then shift responsibility for choosing who uses electric uh, monitoring 
to the sheriffs because we then might have two separate programs with different governing rules and regulations that could be chaotic. I just want to put that on the record and, and, and make that clear. Um, so in a way, we're stuck <laughs> with these rules and regulations from the court, and, that, and I have several problems with these, with these rules and regulations. Now, but before I get into my issues <laughs> with the rules and regulations, let me ask you this. You don't have anyone on post-sentence electronic monitoring, so why are we even going through this exercise in the first place? Um, Not on post-sentence um, it's my understanding because there is there because there is a program for post sentence that um, the California Penal Code requires these rules and regulations to come before this body on an annual basis. So we're following the the California Penal Code requirement. E even even though there's a to, requirement today, to do this, even though e you even don't though have today we don't have anyone there. Right, but you you don't tend to use this. The courts don't tend to use the post-sentencing electronic monitoring program, no, no, right? The, so this the, is a, this is sort of a, a theoretical exercise that that we're doing. Yes, but I I think um, as uh, Mr. Menard mentioned, it does provide an opportunity for this body to discuss electronic this monitoring issue. and weigh in on electronic monitoring. Sure, without much power to do anything about it. But yes, um, so. The, 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 the one question I had is, what if the board decides that these rules and regulations are, are not helpful and actually potentially cause more harm than good um, and, and, and don't approve them? What happens then? Deputy City Attorney John Givner, this is probably a question for me again. The, um, so the... The state law requires that if we have a program, we, the board must review uh, the rules and regs every year. And, and we have interpreted and advised that that requirement to review regs uh, means review and approve. Um, the board has not, I believe, actually voted to approve the rules and regs every year since the ordinance was passed um, and the program has continued, if you decide not to affirmatively approve the rules and regs this year, uh, we would likely advise the sheriff that the existing rules and regs would continue to apply to the program. Uh, but the board could <laughs> modify those rules as to post-sentence EM program, Which isn't if used. you'd like. This is, this is, this is an absurd exercise, but, I, but I'll use the absurd exercise <laughs> to opine about electronic monitoring. So, you know, for the public, <laughs> for the public, uh, the ACLU and Wilson Sincini are suing the city of San Francisco and the sheriff's office uh, because of uh, the way in which uh, their, their, um, uh, Allegations are that the the program on, uh, violates the Fourth and Fourteenth Amendments of uh, those that are subject to it. I, I, I just I want to start out by saying, um, you know, what this what this electronic monitoring program kind of looks like in in practice, right? And and please, uh, at any point, if if you don't agree with anything I say, speak up. <laughs> and, and let me know. Um, but my understanding is that 
those who are placed on electronic monitoring, um, and I would love you to confirm or uh, confirm or not that, that, that this this statement end up spending more time in jail than those that are not um, subject to electronic monitoring. And the reason that this is important, so what I understand is that on average those individuals are spending seven days in jail, whereas um, people that aren't uh, released pretrial are spending around three days. And, and the reason, and, and I don't know if it's the electronic monitoring program itself that causes that additional four days in jail or not, that's, that's a question that I have for you, but if that is the case, it, that means that all the damage that happens when people go to jail, they lose their job, they you know might miss a housing payment and become homeless, uh, they amass debt, they, uh, you know, have strained social bonds, they destabilize their mental and physical health. I mean, all of the, the ramifications of spending a week in jail uh, really destabilize the lives of someone who has not yet been, you know, uh, convicted of a crime. And so is it the electronic monitoring program that's lengthening the pretrial time in jail that an individual, um, you know, stays on average? Um, I'm just going to paraphrase perhaps what uh, Ms. Gog said in her presentation, which is that there is no data that shows causation between EM and uh, any lengthening stay there. Maybe there might be, anyway, I, I don't believe that to be true. You don't um, believe it to be true. But I, you know, I also, I mean, there, there are many variables in here, including the people who are put on EM are the people who the court determines or the, the all of these tools that we have from the PSA to the DMF um, believe are the people at highest risk and highest, uh, highest need. So it, there, it could be uh, a correlation because of, of that, that these people would, without EM, they would be held in custody. But I, we don't have causal data to, to, to prove that one way or the other. We could take a look at that. I, well, I would appreciate that because, um, you know, that's, that is what we're hearing is that, um, you know, and I'd like to know if procedurally, if for some reason, whatever it is, that being placed on electronic monitoring ends up lengthening the, the time someone stays in jail uh, pretrial. Sure, sure, um, yeah, but yeah. We, now, have, we, have, we have no, I just want to repeat though, we have no causal data that um, supports that, and you have no and you don't, but you don't have data that that refutes that either. <laughs> yes, we will. <laughs> you, we you will. We will. Just, we, you don't we will, know one way or another. We will take a look at that. Okay. Okay. Um, now, I you know, uh, we we've talked to uh, a bunch of individuals who've been placed on electronic monitoring pretrial and. And, and mind you, these are people that have not been convicted yet of, of a crime, right? And, 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 and these are some of the experiences that have happened to them, just to, to get a real-life feel of what, what this means. Um, one individual, uh, you know, uh, electronic monitoring means if you're not on home detention that you are allowed to travel but only within a 50-mile radius. Um, this individual was trying to be a good dad and engage in his son's life more, but his son lived 
uh, in Fresno, more than 50 miles outside of San Francisco. And due to this res restrictions, uh, he, you know, his, his relationship, he wasn't able to see his son and his relationship with his son uh, declined. Um, another, another individual, um, the battery died on the electronic monitoring while he was sleeping, and it makes a noise, but it, the noise didn't wake him up, and so uh, police officers ended up showing up at his house in the middle of the night, you know, which woke up the family and was a very scary circumstance. Another client was going to a work event, um, but because there was going to be, um, people were going to use the, a pool and a hot tub, uh, you, you can't get these uh, monitors wet, and so he didn't have the ability to do the bonding activity with his coworkers. Um, another individual developed an awful rash, and then finally, someone who didn't have stable housing, you have to constantly plug in these, these massive monitors on your ankle and the, the and, and this seems like something the sheriff's trying to improve but the actual uh, charger is a short little wire so you have to literally sit by and stand right next to the wall where you're charging well this individual was unhoused and so would literally just have to sit in the sheriff's office and constantly charge the battery so so this is not like this is not a, a, a easy program to be part of, which perhaps is why it, there's only a 40% success rate. And so I'm just wondering, with such a low success rate, um, you know, why is this continuing to be relied upon more and more? And, 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 and before I, I end and hand it over to you to answer that question, you know, this doesn't even get to the the basis of the of the ACLU lawsuit which is you know the fact that some of the conditions the conditions that I would change if the board created its own rules and regulations uh, allow everyone on, on electronic monitoring to be subject to a four-way search um, uh, requires that um, uh, that the uh, individual, sorry, I'm blinking on the, the last uh, main problem. I'll find it um, in, in a minute. But it, th th there are many, many, many issues um, w with this issue. Oh, oh, sorry. And that um, uh, the surveillance, that people are surveilled 24-7 when they have the electronic monitoring and that this data of their movements are, are, are maintained in perpetuity and, and handed over uh, upon request by, by other, other in, individuals and that there's this anxiety um, that comes from being surveilled 24 hours a day. There's lots of noises that these things make. They're very heavy, they're very big, they're very embarrassing. It's hard to get a job when it's hard to hide these things. It, it's just, it's, it's a flawed program. So uh, I wanted you to, to answer that question about with such a low success rate, you know, wh why is this program being used more and more and more? The success rate has uh, come down as EM usage has gone up. Uh, success rates were not always so low. The court uh, 
continues to assign people to EM, uh, continues to assign people with higher risk, higher needs to EM. As I went over, um, our the in-custody population in San Francisco has come down by the amount that EM has gone up. Mm. So, I mean, there's a, I think there's a lot of data here that we could take a look at, but I, uh, you know, I, I think that um, the, I, I mentioned this in my in my uh, in my presentation that with this increase have come challenges, and I we haven't. Um, you know, we're still learning from these challenges. I think to uh, conclude that the program is no good is going beyond where we should go. Um, we have engaged with California Policy Lab to try to understand some things that we can do to improve the program, and we engaged with California Policy Lab so that we could actually start working on these on these issues. But we have we have been spending a lot of time to to study this. Um, it is it is a changing program, and it's really it's a changing program because uh, we have a changing uh, criminal justice uh, landscape here in San Francisco, and the courts are putting more and more people on EM. So, with the sixty percent of people that fail, they go they they're placed in jail when they fail the program. Um, not necessarily. What happens to them? Um, they the the courts might put them back on EM. They might put them back on EM, you know, many, many times. Um, and they might fail. Maybe at some point they might go back into custody, but it's, it's certainly not what happens um, every time that someone fails. Yeah. I, 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 I again, I, and I'll hand, hand it back to my colleagues, but I'll just, I'll just finish with this. Um, I think this is a, a, a failed program. I think the rules and regulations violate individuals' rights. I think it makes it that much harder before an individual is convicted of a crime to do all the things necessary to lead a, a, a life free of, of, of crime where you are able to visit and see your family, where you're able to engage in activities with your coworkers and feel good in your workplace, where you're not constantly embarrassed, where you get sleep at night and aren't woken up by constantly failing batteries, where you don't have to stand by a plug uh, for hours a day and, and, um, and, and, and feel like your every move is surveilled. Um, I, I really think these are, are problematic. And what I don't understand as well, and there needs to be much more study and data, which you obviously agree with, uh, about this, because um, it's not clear to me that there's also a direct correlation between declining incarceration and electronic monitoring. There could just be, an, you know, an additional electronic monitoring is another way to control an individual uh, in, in addition to in, in more incarceration. I mean, it, it, there's so much data that we don't know. I, we agree on this point, um, but I, 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 have, I have a lot of issues uh, with this program. And I, honestly, I think this is such a ridiculous exercise that we're engaged in right now. But I, you know, I will, I would be uh, suggesting that we vote the, the, these rules and regulations down because of all the problems that they cause. Uh, not that it matters in any real way what we do with this one way or another. Supervisor Chan. Thank you, Chair Rona, and I understand the frustration and uh, share the sentiment of um, really, I think we, we could 
do better for both. Um, actually, uh, again, I think I have already articulated my question around the resolution that if this is really about pre-sentence, then let's focus on pre-sentence um, since there's no one is, is participating in the post-sentence. I, I think that I today I'm I'm ready to vote to continue the item to the call of chair for, for, for one reason. I think that there is the Sheriff Oversights Commission that has recently established. I think that your uh, last meeting was just September 26th where you elected a president and vice president. Um, I think that the commission uh, perhaps was exactly uh, the intent of both the voters and I think this body who voted to put this on the ballot that allow a commission to have oversight of the operation of the of sheriff's department. I would like to see if there's a possibility for them to weigh in and uh, on these programs, both pre-sentence and post-sentence programs to actually make some type of recommendation to this body about the rules and regulations uh, and seeing you know their discussion and and, and from their subject expertise. And the fact that the commission itself um, is equally appointed uh, by the legislative and the executive branch, um, that I think that the, the conversation is, is probably gonna be fairly robust and um, I would hope nonpartisan uh, in, in many ways. So I, I look forward to seeing, seeing that if, if possible, but yeah. Supervisor Safai? Yeah, I just, I, I guess I'm a little bit, uh, I understand the sentiment of what, what you're saying, but I, I guess what I heard from our city attorney is if we vote this down, then they're just gonna go with the existing rules and reg regulations, is that correct? Uh, through the chair to our city attorney. Deputy City Attorney John Gibner again. From what I understand, understand from Supervisor Chan's proposal is that you would keep this in committee continue it to the call of the chair so that the chair could bring no, the I, item back. I understand, I understand that, Mr. Mr. Gibner. What I'm saying is if we don't act, they're going to still operate under their current rules and regulations. But is that if, correct? That's right. But and if then, we and, act, and, it's the same rules and regulations. Right. If we act, it's the same <laughs> rules and regulations. And if we continue to the call of the chair, it's the same rules and regulations. And the most important thing I heard today was if we were to do some of what the BLA recommended, which we were considering and looking at, it would then take the authority away from the courts and it would give it to the sheriff's department, which I think this body would prefer and I think they might prefer an independent outside entity making those rules. Is that, is that correct, Mr. Gibner? Is that, that's the way I understand it. Um, or they would be in conflict, as Chair Ronan put out. We would have two, or it would just be a very confusing, two parallel, system. two conflicting, two additional programs. So I, at least that's, that's right. what I understand. And then the second thing I would say is one thing that did jump out from the presentation. Um, what was the name of the group again? California Policy Lab. Uh, are, are you? Are they still on the on the line? Can we call them back up? Yes. Um, I wanted you to say a little bit more. The thing that jumped out to me the most was the 42%, regardless of their um, specifics around their pretrial sentencing, it seemed to me that 42% of the individuals that were failing were folks that were fallen to the 
violating a stay away. Can you talk a little bit more about that and what some of the thoughts you have around that? Because I think that might be a place to put some energy into and in working with the sheriff's office on that. But just wanted to hear some more of your thoughts around that. Sure, thank you. And I will admit that this is a complicated part. Um, so as I said in the presentation, we can't observe the reason someone was terminated. So we have this balance, the 77.5% that did not have a new arrest in San Francisco. And what we can see is the types of misconduct that they had and what we can observe in the data. And so that was, you know, 66% of those had a uh, non-compliance report. And the most frequent non-compliance report type was stay away. And unfortunately, as I promised at the beginning, there's going to be a lot more questions than answers. The structure of the data, we can't pull more information about what the type of stay away violation was. So this is kind of extracting from a PDF report that says, okay, they're on the listed reasons for the non-compliance report, it says stay away. And just to kind of also add clarity, you know, this is these are these are reports that are then submitted to the to the court to review and then determine if that um, changes the uh, terms of the electronic monitoring. So, you know, all to say that in terms of the non-compliance reports that we see, violation of a stay away order is the most common. Um, whether that means that that's the reason for the termination, we can't say conclusively. Okay. Great. And then I guess the other thing that I heard that was pretty clear was that as our jail population uh, has gone down, or those that are in custody has gone down, the electronic monitoring program has gone up. And some of that is driven by the state, where we've been forced and asked to reduce the jail population based on a lot of the state laws and regulations. Is, is, do I understand that correctly? I would say it the other way around, that as the Sorry. EM as EM has gone up, the population has gone down, but yes, that's correct. There's a realignment in well, many ways. I, I can't speak to the reasons why, but there's certainly been that, <laughs> that there's been a strong correlation between increased numbers of people being um, put on uh, release with EM as opposed to detention. Thank you. I, I mean, I would just say I, I think what I heard the most was that this was an opportunity for us to have a public conversation about it. I, too, am concerned about the application being done um, equitably, um, thinking about how it increases or decreases our incarcerated population, and if there are successes uh, or failures that are happening. I'm, I'm also concerned about that. But just as I understand the mechanics of all this, I don't think really any action that we take is going to ultimately impact the final outcome of this because it's more determined by the courts that have predetermined the guidelines of how this should be applied. And I think, I think we agree that we would like to, it to remain in their hands. So I don't think we've agreed on that oh, okay. at all. But I, I, this exercise today is absurd. We have nobody on post-trial right. electronic monitoring. Um, we cannot uh, change the rules and regulations um, and that no matter what we do it, it, it won't change it so we can either we can either agree symbolically agree with these right we can continue it to the call of the chair and not address the issue one way or another or we can symbolically vote it down <laughs> but nothing is actually going to change anything in real life right so yeah. can, I, can I can I ask one more question chair I just want to give the sheriff's 
um, department. If we were to continue the call of the chair or vote this down, is there any is there anything that we haven't thought about that has implications for this program or your department for this program? Well, the last time that we were here before this body, it was continued to the call of the chair, and the program has continued. Okay. So, I did you did you I did you make a can I make a motion? The, the, the program actually can I just add the program sure. has continued because the courts order this. The courts have their authority oh, and I, they order. I understand. They That's order why this this, yes, I, this yes. entire uh, this entire exercise is completely stupidly symbolic and <laughs> doesn't affect anything in real life, but gave us an opportunity to talk about electronic monitoring and its implications on people's lives. And I think that that's important and I'm glad we had the conversation and we will be looking into ways in which we can mm -hmm. impact in a meaningful way mm -hmm. <laughs> this discussion, which is not gonna be through the outcome of this, this ordinance. Having said that, oh yeah, Supervisor Chan. You can finish your comment. I, I just wanted to respond to it. I think the fact that the program continues one way or another, so whether it's a core chair or that we killed this item here at the committee, it's the same impact, which is what I assume. Right? Yeah, I mean, okay, so what I'm getting from my colleagues is that they wanna continue this item to the call of the chair. For the record, I would have voted it down, but as we've all said, it makes no difference. So do you want to make, oh, let's open this item up for public comment before we do anything at all. Thank you, Madam Chair. Members of the public who wish to speak on this item and are joining us in person should line up to speak now. Uh, for those listening remotely, please call 415-655-0001. Enter the meeting ID of 2495-039-9628, then press pound twice. Once connected, you will need to press star three to enter the speaker line. And for those already in the queue, please continue to wait until the system indicates you have been unmuted. And I'll be your queue to begin your comments. Um. Good afternoon, Madam Chair. So I'm actually going to speak on public comment, but just more as an offer of assistance. I think you brought, oh, and for the minutes or for the record, it's Ronnie Singh. Um, I think that you brought up so many important points about the intersection of the failures and the successes of EM. But one thing that wasn't mentioned on the record in any of these statements, either by BLA, by um, CPL, or by the Sheriff's Office, is COVID had a very dramatic impact on the success of EM. And I can speak from somebody who is a former uh, district attorney someone who ran the collaborative courts where EM was used as a tool of success, but it was wrapped in a warm blanket of services along with that. So when you talked about what do we need to do plus, and Supervisor um, Safai also said, how do we fix that 60%? How do we fix that 42%. I think we need to go back. Whatever the rules committee today decides, whether we put it over for chair, these are such critical pieces of collaborative discussion that we can have with you, with the constituents, with budget agencies, just everyone in general, with our justice partners, with the courts, with the presiding judge. I know you, Chair, um, Ronan to be somebody who has been super involved 
in the courts. So I think that that's a really important piece to take to the next level if we further this discussion. Thank you, Ronnie Singh, for your comments. Seeing no more in-person speakers here in the chamber, uh, we currently have 10 on the telephonic line with four in the queue. So, uh, Mr. Lamb, unmute our first caller, please. Hi, my name is Ambrose Brooks, and I'm calling from LA County. I am the coalition coordinator of the Justice LA Coalition here in LA. And we are in a similar fight against the use of electronic monitoring. Electronic monitoring is a form of incarceration. And implementing these programs, counties are supporting surveillance conglomerates who have a continued financial interest in maintaining and increasing the frequent use of electronic monitoring. Ian expands the net of incarceration into the home rather than reducing it. Here in LA, we've heard evidence of individuals who would have been released on pretrial without supervision, but were instead subjected to the <clears throat> punitive use of electronic monitoring. Electronic monitoring brings surveillance and incarceration into the home, and in no way does EM promote, you know, restoration and involvement in community. People are often terminated from employment, find it impossible to care for their children and make medical appointments, and become an active member of their community. I call on this board to expand the ROR eligibility and invest in community support programs by looking last to incarceration and community support first. Thank you. Thank you for your comments, Amber Rose Brooks. Mr. Lamb, next speaker, please. Good afternoon, Chair and Supervisors. Wesley Saver, Senior Policy Manager for Glide. I love everything that Ms. Brooks just said. On multiple occasions, the board has received recommendations from the No Elective Jail Coalition about alternatives to EM. And at Glide, we agree that EM funds should instead be invested in programs that are proven to support court attendance. I'd recommend, too, that pretrial diversion be moved to DPH or the General Services Agency. Now, at Glide, we work closely with people who are formerly incarcerated and their families, and our work provides daily evidence of the barriers and vulnerabilities that result. When our clients are reentering the community, everything is difficult all at once, and people need to be connected with services, attend meetings, renew their education, reconnect with loved ones, secure housing and employment, and obtain food and the resources necessary to divide. To survive. Rather, movement is essential, though, and EM greatly limits the success of people who are shackled with these devices. Our city's reliance on the program is harmful, it's wasteful, it's counterproductive, and a 2022 Harvard report that was released last month recommended that San Francisco significantly and substantially scale back its use of EM. Meanwhile, Supervisor Dorsey's SF Recovers resolution misguidedly involves expanding the EM program. Based on the discussion today, I would expect you all to oppose that resolution unless the EM component is amended away. As CPL alluded in their presentation, there is no data to corroborate that EM is conclusively an effective use of community resources, let alone useful in addressing drug consumption or sales. And it's not about obtaining better devices and data. EM is a flawed and dysfunctional system, one which is unsupported by any meaningful outcomes or respected evidentiary standard. We need to set people up for success not throw up barriers that undermine their reentry. We need to reduce EM. Thank you. Thank you much for your comments, Wesley Saver. Mr. Lamb, next speaker, please. Hi, good afternoon. My name is Carolyn Goosen. I'm the local policy director with the Public Defender's Office. And thank you so much, supervisors, for this robust discussion. What we've heard here today confirms what we have known for years. 
the black community is severely overrepresented in the EM population versus those who are um, placed outside pretrial but on OR. Number two, there's no evidence that electronic monitoring improves public safety in a measurable way. 40% so-called success rate only means the person didn't get terminated unsuccessfully from EM. It doesn't mean that folks are employed or are able to get treatment. It doesn't mean folks are housed. The 40% success rate doesn't touch on any of those questions. We have no reason to believe that people are better off in any meaningful way upon completing successfully EM than they were before they were on EM. And now we have a recent study last month from Harvard School of Social Research telling us that in fact, electronic monitoring NSF is harming people in many ways in terms of employment, housing, and community connections. San Francisco should not be maintaining a program that is racist and harms people instead of helping them. Thank you so much for your willingness to move this to the call of the chair and not move it forward. Um, it is not a program that will help our community in any way. Thank you. Thank you much, Carolyn Goosen, for your comment. Mr. Lamb, next speaker, please. Good afternoon, Hannah Kieschnick. I'm a staff attorney with the ACLU of Northern California. As Supervisor Ronan noted, along with a law firm, the ACLU has sued the sheriff over aspects of its pretrial electronic monitoring program. Pretrial electronic monitoring is supposed to ensure that people appear in court and comply with the terms of their release. The sheriff's only role is to administer the EM program as ordered by the court and ensure compliance. It's not meant to be an all-purpose law enforcement tool trained on a specific vulnerable population, but that's how the sheriff is treating it. As the BLA has clarified, the board has not authorized the sheriff's pretrial EM program, and the sheriff is taking advantage. Specifically, um, the sheriff and not the court is imposing what it terms program rules that are not included in the scope of work that is before the board and the Sentinel's contract. Those rules are unlawful. He's requiring people released on pretrial EM to submit to what Supervisor Ronan called four-way searches at any time for any reason. He's also retaining GPS data indefinitely and freely sharing that data with law enforcement without a warrant even after an individual's supervision is over. So that's why we have sued. Only a court could impose such conditions. Again, the court is not. Without shifting electronic monitoring decisions to the sheriff under the penal code, the board still has an important role to play and a duty to rein in the sheriff's unlawful policies. It should, as the BLA suggests, require via ordinance destruction of GPS location data upon termination of electronic monitoring. It should also at the very least condemn the warrantless search of individuals who are presumed innocent. While we have asked the court to put a stop to the sheriff's unlawful policies, we would also call on the board to do its part to protect vulnerable San Franciscans from this unlawful surveillance. Time has elapsed. Thank you. Thank you much, Hannah Kieschnick, for your comments. Mr. Lamb, next speaker, please. Hi, Supervisors. My name is Anthony. I live and work in District 9. I'm the Executive Director of Community Resource Initiative in the Mission, which is a member of the known USFJL Coalition. Uh, my org works with individuals who are facing criminal charges and their families, and we strongly are opposed to the use of electronic monitoring, both pretrial and for serving a sentence. 
I'm urging you to end the city's electronic monitoring program, vote down these rules, and to seek meaningful input from the community in the process um, while working to oppose monitoring on all fronts. The rules of the M program are unconstitutional, as Hannah had just said. They violate individual civil rights, allowing unwarranted search and seizure and the endless retention of GPS data. I appreciate Chair Ronan's agreement with this. My organization is a party to the ACLU lawsuit suing the sheriff challenging these rules. Individuals on EM who are participants of my organization's program live in constant fear and paranoia of being searched for no reason at all while trying to recover, be safe, participate in programming, and it brings incarceration into homes, communities, and spaces of service providers. The board has a crucial part, as Hannah said, in playing, um, a crucial part to play in protecting our communities. Our city's reliance on electronic monitoring is harmful and we must move away from it in all forms of surveillance of incarceration. It's ineffective and EM has been cited as a large reason for budget increases in the sheriff department. Instead, those resources can be invested in support for increasing release and reentry and focus on services that strengthen community ties that will truly keep us safe. As long as we are using electronic monitoring in the city, I ask that you do not move forward with the approval of these rules. Um, and work to implement harm reduction recommendations for electronic monitoring as outlined by the new SFJL coalition. Thank you, Supervisors. Thank you, Anthony, for your comments. Mr. Lamb, next speaker, please. Hello, uh, my name is Ellen. I live and work in San Francisco in D5. I'm calling in today to say that I am fervently opposed to electronic monitoring. We should be putting our energy and resources toward initiatives that increase community safety for all rather than increasing forms of incarceration in San Francisco. Electronic monitoring is a punitive sanction that fails to provide the services, support, and opportunities that people really need. We already know that policing disproportionately impacts certain communities, and electronic monitoring brings incarceration into the homes of Black, Indigenous, Brown, trans, and poor people. These are absolutely not a replacement for imprisonment. Between 2018 and early 2020, we saw the number of people with ankle monitors in San Francisco triple with the jail population increased. And as you've heard from others today already, there is no data to show that electronic monitoring is useful in addressing drug consumption or sales. I urge you to instead direct resources to decriminalizing quality of life crimes, investing in services and programs for pretrial support, and explore all possibilities for release. Our city's reliance on electronic monitoring is harmful, and we must move away from this in all forms of surveillance and incarceration. This does not reflect the San Francisco I want to live in, and I ask that you push forward policies that reflect what San Franciscans' values are, a focus on community support, meeting communities' real needs, rather than an increase in incarceration. It's this board's responsibility to bring light to such crucial information, so I implore you to hold additional hearings and invite the community to weigh in. Thank you, Ellen, for your comments. Uh, Mr. Lamb, can you confirm that that was our last speaker? Yes, Madam Chair, that was our last speaker. Thank you. Public comment is now closed. Supervisor Chand or Safai, did you want to make a motion? Sure, I'll make the motion to continue to the call, Chair. Can we have a roll call vote on that motion? On that motion by Member Chan that this resolution be continued to the call of the chair. Vice Chair Safai. Aye. Safai, aye, Member Chan. Aye. Chan, aye, Chair Ronan. Aye. Ronan, aye. We have three ayes. That motion passes unanimously. Thank you. We'll be uh, continuing to discuss this. Uh, with that, Mr. Chair, uh, Mr. Chair, Mr. Clerk, are there any other items on today's agenda? Uh, chair Ronan, that concludes our business. Then this meeting is adjourned.